0: But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to uh, put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, uh, therefore repent, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for your word, and uh, we long to have our hearts and our minds shaped by it. And uh, we pray that that through these words, you'd lead us to Jesus, our Savior, the lover of our souls, and um, that in him we would find rest, we would find wholeness and peace, we would find hope. And um, so may your Holy Spirit be our our teacher. Now, enlighten our minds to understand these words and to apply them into our lives, into our community, into our culture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are are looking at Revelation chapter 2, and the the early chapters of Revelation are made up of seven uh, letters that were written to seven churches in the first century, And our passage today is the third of those seven letters. It's the letter written to the church in the city of Pergamum. And I've titled this sermon, The Secret of the Soul. And I'll explain how I got that from this passage uh, in a few minutes. But first, let me just say a, 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 a few words about the soul. What is the soul? Dallas Willard says that the soul is the aspect of your whole being that ties everything about who you are together. He says it is the life center of the human being. The soul is the center of who you are. And I think most of us have a sense that I sense I have a soul. There's some spiritual parts of me. I'm not sure if I could identify or tell you what the soul is, but I know I have one and it's alive and at work within me. And of course, the Bible says important things about the soul. Deuteronomy says, keep your soul diligently. Which means your soul requires attention. Don't neglect caring for your soul. Jesus says that those who come to him, he will give rest to your soul. And uh, that means that your soul can be weary. Your soul can be worn out and tired. And maybe some of you this morning are here feeling uh, wearied in your soul or or tired in your soul. Well, uh, the individual soul is also a major part of modern life. You know, in the, in the uh, traditional cultures, you're, the main way that you understood who you were was based on your family or your tribe or your culture around you or your faith. You know, the church that you're a member of. Or even if you're a pagan, maybe the fate of the gods. But um, modern people have elevated the soul to such a status that is, it's, it's more important than our bodies uh, so, for example, it's, it's now intelligible to say something like, I am a boy with the body of a girl. And what is that basically saying? That my body is a girl, but my soul is a boy, and my soul is who I really am. And so there's been no culture that's given greater emphasis to the individual soul, but uh, we are also a culture whose individual souls are often tormented. Uh, there's rampant depression and a sense of meaninglessness in the world. Uh, the role of psychologists have just skyrocketed you know in the last half century in our in our culture. And what is psychology? It comes from the Greek word Suke the soul it's the study of the soul. and as psychologists are doctors for the soul. And if you have a whole culture of people who are all going to soul doctors, what does that tell you about the culture? It's a culture whose souls are sick. Does the Bible have anything to say to sick souls? Well, this passage, uh, as we read this passage from Revelation 2, I think we see Jesus as a soul doctor. Uh, You see there in verse 12 how it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we know that speaking of Jesus, the earlier imagery in Revelation says Jesus has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And what does Jesus do with his two-edged sword? Well, Hebrews tells us uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. The two-edged sword cuts into our soul. So Jesus is like like a soul surgeon that our souls need to be cut and then healed and mended up. And he's not only a soul surgeon, but we also read in uh, verse, the second part of verse 17 there, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna is like spiritual bread, spiritual food. And so we learn that uh, our souls are hungry. They're malnourished. And so Jesus is also a soul nutritionist. He knows what our souls need to become healthy. So what all this says is that our souls are sick. Maybe your soul feels sick. And the Bible says you can't heal yourself. You need a physician. And Jesus is the great soul physician. And so to understand how he heals us, today I want to answer three questions for us from this passage, uh, from Revelation 2. This is what the three questions are. What does our culture say is the secret to the soul? What are the consequences of such a belief And third, how does Jesus bring healing to the soul? So, three questions. What does our culture say is the secret to the soul? Second, what are the consequences of such a belief? And third, how does Jesus bring healing to the soul? And I think just important insights for us from, from Revelation to today. So, three questions. The first is this What does our culture say is the secret to the soul? And to answer that, I'd like to point out something about the this, this seven letters that are written in the first uh, early chapters of, of Revelation. And uh, each of these uh, seven letters to seven churches correlates with uh, a period of time from the Old Testament history of the people of Israel. So, for example, if you uh, read the first letter of Jesus to the churches, it talks about eating the, the, from the tree of life and the paradise of God. And immediately, where does that bring us in the Old Testament? Brings us to the creation story, the Garden of Eden, the beginning. And then in the story that we looked at last week, talked about being thrown in prison and then being given the crown of life. And you say, well, who in the Old Testament was thrown in prison and then was raised up to a place of power? Well, that was Joseph in the book of Genesis. And so the second, the second letter refers to the time of the patriarchs of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, uh, and Joseph. Now we come to the third letter and you see What period of Israel's history is referred to in verse 14? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, the the reference to Balaam and Balak is from the book of Numbers. The Numbers is the story after Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt. They were wandering around in, in the wilderness, and Balaam was a prophet who had tried to curse the people of Israel, and the Lord wouldn't let him do it. And so finally he blesses the people of Israel, but he's trying to help the king of Moab, who is Balak. And the way he tries to mess with the people of Israel is by sending uh, Moabite women to seduce them and uh, by encouraging them to worship idols. And that's why it says, if you read verse 14 again, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might, these two things, eat food sacrificed to idols, that's worshiping idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so Jesus sees a parallel from the teaching of Balaam in the Old Testament and what's happening in Pergamum in in the first century. And so when we ask the question, what does our culture say is the secret to the soul? We find that over thousands of years, whether it's 3,500 years ago in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, or if it's 2,000 years ago in the city of Pergamum in, you know, modern day Turkey, or if it's 2021 in Bellingham, the human heart has not changed much. Every culture tries to satisfy the soul in the same two ways, with false gods and with sex. False gods and sex. It was the same back then, it's the same today. And so I want to say a few words about each of these. So what does our culture says is the secret to the soul? Well, first is false gods. And this passage mentions food sacrificed to idols, which that's not very familiar to us. We don't walk around Bellingham and see pagan temples where people are killing animals and then eating them as an act of worship to pagan gods. But the Bible doesn't just say that false gods are statues, but anything can become an object of worship. Uh, The human soul was made to worship. Humans made in God's image were made to worship our creator. And when we turn away from God... It's not that you stop worshiping when you turn away from God. You just find something else to worship. You find something else to sacrifice your life to. You find something else to give your money to. You find something else to obey whenever it demands something of you. You find something else to be the center of your emotional life. And our culture often encourages this. You know, we've probably had those conversations. Maybe you've had this conversation with people where people say, you have to have something in your life that you are passionate about. And our culture said, what is that thing? No matter what it is, it could be cooking. It could be your job. It could be your family. It could be a hobby. It could be adventures. But you need something that is your deep passion that you pour yourself into, and that will give you life. That's the secret to the soul. But what all those things are, are are just false gods. And so even though Christian worship is in decline in our culture, the soul will not go worshipless. It will find an object to worship. We are worshiping animals. And so even though our culture is not filled with temples to pagan gods, our culture is still filled with idols. And maybe the biggest idol is the second answer to what does our culture say is the secret of the soul. It's not just false gods, things to pour, you know, your passions into. But maybe even more of that is we look to sex to answer the secret of the soul. We think that sex is the key to the soul. And the word here for sexual immorality, there in, in verse 14, is the, is the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. And it's the Bible's uh, catchword for summarizing the many ways that humans find to engage in sexual activity in ways that God had, did not intend sex to be used. And so this includes fornication. Fornication like, is the Bible's word for sleeping with your girlfriend, uh, prostitution. Lusting after someone who's not your spouse, that would include watching pornography in our day, homosexual sex, incest, pedophilia. The Bible is very clear that sex is a good gift from God, but that all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is expressly forbidden. Now, I know that many people in our culture, maybe some of you here would be deeply troubled by that teaching. They'd say, actually, the problem with the soul is that we repress the soul, and we have all these desires in our soul, and when you don't let someone satisfy those desires, you're actually doing damage to the soul by treating them that way. The Bible is repressing people. Um, the thing that strikes me about that is that our culture talks with such confidence um, about the ways you know, we should be able to be free to have sex with whoever we want. But this is the question of the people that you've known in your life that have no guardrails for their sex life. Do you look at their life and you say sexual health? Do we look at our culture and say, our, our culture is the picture of, of sexual health? Most people would say no. We should be humbled that we don't know what healthy sex is, and actually, it's fascinating that our culture is so deeply sexualized, and yet statistics show that people are having far less sex than they used to. Uh, Teenagers now have less sex than they did when I was a teenager, and you might think, oh, well, that's a good thing that teenagers aren't having sex. It's, It's actually not, because they're still addicted to sex, you know, online and to pornography, but they're never encountering a real human, They're not actually encountering true intimacy. They're not actually having a taste of love and risk that goes into romance. And so they're being isolated. So they're even more addicted but having less sex. Whenever you distort one of God's good gifts, it loses the blessing that God intended for it. And our culture is experiencing that right now. And I want to say that maybe you are here and you are trapped in sexual sin. Or maybe you've, you have a, a sex life that you didn't know was contrary to God's word and God's design. Maybe you realize it's not satisfying the deep longings of your soul or maybe even damaging your soul. Well, you should know that one of the great themes of the Bible in church history is that the sexually immoral come to Jesus and he welcomes and forgives them. It's, it's actually, if, when you read the literature of the early church, the hero stories, are about prostitutes who come to Jesus and he washes them in the waters of baptism. They are the heroes of the early church. They're, the hero, they're heroes in the, in the stories of the gospels. He, they're the ones that Jesus welcomes. And so the Bible says both the hardest words and the softest words to those who are trapped in sexual sin. The great story of Jesus when he uh, met the woman that had been caught in adultery, he says to her both, I do not condemn you. But he also says, go and sin no more. And so what does our culture say about the secret of the soul? Our culture, like all cultures in human history, has sought to satisfy the soul with false gods and with sex. And both are failing us. And it's interesting how uh, fiercely our uh, culture says that our personal choices around worship and sex must always be affirmed. And so when we are insisting that we affirm the worship and sex lives of anyone, that leads us to a second question. What are the consequences of such a belief? What are the consequences of approaching the soul that way? When you answer the secret of the soul with false gods and sex, you will find yourself in a wilderness, in a dry and barren land where there is no water. And in the seven letters, uh, Jesus usually begins these seven letters by saying to the churches, I know your deeds. Like, I know your works. I know how you live. I know your lifestyle. But in this one letter, he says something different. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. So instead of saying, I know your works, he says, I know where you dwell. And he knows their context. He knows their culture. He knows the world that's around them and where they've been immersed. And uh, the fact that this letter corresponds with the book of Numbers, book of Numbers takes place in the wilderness, you know, the Israelites had come out of Egypt, and they're wandering around in the wilderness. And that makes sense that it's in the wilderness, because verse 13 goes on to say, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne. Where, where does Satan dwell? When Jesus is tempted by Satan, where does it happen? It happens in the wilderness. When you're in a wilderness, you're vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, and by the way, uh, maybe one side note, you know, some of you might wonder, what it, what is the the uh, throne of Satan? Is that a place? And, you know, we actually don't know a lot about what the throne of Satan is. There's a lot of guesses around. But if you've been with us in this series of Revelation, let me just say a few words about this. It's kind of a side note. Um, if you've been with us in this series on Revelation, you know that we keep mentioning that throughout the New Testament and the book of Revelation, the early church was always experiencing pressure from Two directions: one was from the Roman Empire, and one was from fellow Jews who uh, didn't accept Jesus as, as the Messiah. And uh, both of those pressures—the Roman Empire and fellow Jews—is tied to the throne of Satan. So then, the letter last week we read about the synagogue of Satan, which is a reference to the persecution from that the early Christians were experiencing from fellow Jews. But later in Revelation, it talks about a sea beast. The sea beast is an image for the Roman Empire. And then it talks about a dragon who is an image of Satan. And so in Revelation 13, 2, it says, And to the sea beast, that's the Roman Empire, the dragon, Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the throne of Satan is given to the Roman Empire. It's the imperial cult of the Roman Empire. And so the church in Pergamum is surrounded by these pressures and a culture that is immersed in idolatry and sexual immorality. And that, you know, that cult- those cultural pressures aren't just outside the church. You know, Jesus is speaking to a church. He knows that these things are within the church. It's not like, oh yeah, there's all these sinful things that are out in the world and the church is the good people. All these letters are written to the church because the culture comes into the church. And so what are the consequences of a culture like that, that approaches the soul that way. Well, a couple of things I want to highlight is first is it's a culture of shame. A culture given to, to false gods and to sex will find itself to be a culture of shame. And the name Satan means the accuser. Satan loves when people worship other gods and give themselves to whatever sexual practices they want because he knows he can just dump shame all over them. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he loves to do is to dump shame all over people. And it's amazing that our culture is constantly saying, don't judge me. Uh, I can believe what I want. I can have sex with whoever I want. And why do we keep saying don't judge me? Is because we don't want to feel shame. That's exactly the lie of Satan. Satan says, there's no shame in this. You can do these, follow these sins and turn away from the Lord and follow your own desires. There's no shame. And we believe it. And then we have a whole life of years and decades that we're just immersed in shame. And Jesus takes the opposite. He tells us the truth. It is shameful. And I will wash you. And you can come to me. I'll take your shame and Jesus bore our shame on the cross and he he's forgiven our sins and he embraces us and he welcomes us he's honest with us and he loves us and he takes away the shame and so the consequences of false gods and sexual sin of our culture is first a culture of shame second it's also a culture of insanity And when you have false gods and sexual immorality at the center of your soul, your mind will get all messed up. You won't know how to think about the world or interpret the world or interpret yourself anymore. And you notice the mention of false teaching in this passage. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a movement of false teachers among the early church who gave some emphasis to, to worshiping idols into sexual immorality or they let that happen in the church. And when you seek to satisfy your soul with sin, it always messes up your thinking because you'll have to find intellectual ways to justify your shameful living. We always do that. Our thinking matches our lives. Our thinking follows our lives. You live away and then you will use your mind to justify your way. This is the wilderness of life without Christ. Is shame and insanity. And some of you here you might say I've I've made something other than my creator the center of my life. Or you other, you might be here and say I have a secret sexual addiction. Maybe it's been nurtured for years. Maybe it's drowning you in shame. What does Jesus say to you? Verse 16 is his simple answer. Therefore, repent. And I don't know how you hear the word repent. You might hear that as a hard word. It's like a mean word. Repentance is a grace. Because repentance doesn't mean stop being a bad person, start being a good person. Repentance means repentance. Turn from your life of sin and turn to the savior who rescues and loves sinners, who welcomes sinners, who re- welcome the adulterous woman, has a whole history, who washes people in the waters of baptisms, who welcomes sinners to his table, who teaches them and disciples them. Turn to him, Jesus wants you to turn to him and Jesus wants to heal your soul. And that leads to our final question today. So to summarize what we said so far, What does our culture say is the secret to the soul? It tells us to worship false gods and to have sex. That will fail. That has failed us. It's failing our culture. It's failed us who are in this room. We know that. What are the consequences of such a belief? Shame and insanity. So how does Jesus bring healing to the soul? And a C.S. Lewis is a is a hero of mine. And C.S. Lewis became a Christian because he found that he had these deep longings in his soul that nothing in the world could satisfy. He would have these pangs of joy where he felt like he would, you know, kind of encounter the thing that his soul was longing for. When he'd read a poem or he'd he'd be on a hike and he'd he'd see the countryside and nature would stir these deep longings in him. But uh, he has a famous line in *Mere Christianity* where he says. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I have longings in my heart that no experience can satisfy, no sex can satisfy, no no adventure can satisfy, no artwork, no beauty, no relationship, no work, no success, no money can satisfy. It means I'm longing for something else. And, and C.S. Lewis found that it was only his creator. The one who created us made our souls a certain shape that they only fit. It's like a key that only fits in the lock of God himself. Revealed to us in Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, what What does the healing look like when he comes to us? Well, let me just point out a few things from this passage. First, Jesus gives security to our souls. You know, our souls are insecure. They're fearful. And one of the things in this passage, you see in verse 13, it says, the second part of verse 13, it says, Yet you hold fast my name. Actually, these letters were written to pastors. The pastors are the angels of these churches. They're the messengers of these churches. And earlier in Revelation, they're called the stars, And so here Jesus is saying to the pastor, you hold on to my name. You've been persecuted. You've got the Roman Empire. You've got these Jews that are coming after you. You've got a culture that's immersed in idolatry and sexual immorality. And you've been holding fast to my name. But that word holding fast has appeared earlier in Revelation. It's in Revelation 1 where it says that Jesus held the stars in his hand. And he said to this pastor, before you were holding me fast, I was holding you fast. And the security of a soul is to know that Jesus is holding on to you. He says that if you are one of his, no one can snatch you from his hands. He holds fast to you. There is security. Our souls need security. So first, Jesus gives the soul security. Second, Jesus gives the soul satisfaction. And C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the longings of, of the soul are like a hunger You know, and we live in a world where humans have stomachs. And if you have a stomach, it'd be weird if there was no such thing as food. You know, you have the stomach that was made for food. And there's evidence that there is food in the world that we have stomachs. He says it's the same with our souls. If there is a hunger in our souls, there is some food that will satisfy that hunger. And Jesus tells us what satisfies that hunger. You see verse 17. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. There is spiritual food. That's what hidden manna is. It's the bread from heaven. It's Christ himself who gives us food that will satisfy our souls. Do you have that kind of longing? Have you looked to satisfy your longing in other places and found that the hunger just gets stronger? You feel more empty. It's because it can only be satisfied by the true fruit who is Christ. And so Jesus gives the soul security and satisfaction, but there's one last thing, is that Jesus gives the soul a secret. And C.S. Lewis has another, one of my favorite chapters that he wrote, is the last chapter in his book, The Problem of Pain. It's on heaven And uh, in that chapter where he's talking about heaven, he says that each of us, our souls uniquely see the world and enjoy the world in ways that no one else can. And there, you know, there are certain things that each of us like about the world that we can't really describe to other people. You know, he talks about if you're a rower and the way the oar goes in the water and you just say, there's something special about it. I can't really tell you why I love it, but it just, you know, it's so dear to my heart. Or if you're a painter and the texture is on the paint and there's a subtlety in the artwork, I can't really describe it, but I just love it. And every once in a while you meet a friend who kind of gets it. But one of the things that we find over and over again is that no one totally knows me. Whether it's your best friend, whether it's your spouse for decades, for a whole lifetime, no one really knows me. There is a secret about each one of us. And the longing of our souls is deeply tied to this secret. It's the desire to be known and loved and accepted. It's the desire to share this secret with someone and for them to get us. And when Lewis is talking about this on his book on heaven, he quotes Revelation 2, this passage that we just read together. And it's that final phrase in in verse 17. You see what Jesus says. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In heaven, you and I will receive a white stone. It will say the deepest thing about who you are, and it will be a secret for all eternity, just between you and your Lord. That intimacy, that closeness is the thing that our souls deeply long for. And so, as Deuteronomy says, keep your soul with all diligence. But really, the way to do that is to know the keeper of your soul. He is better than the false gods and false sex. He will set you free from shame and insanity, and in him you will know security, satisfaction, and the true secret to your soul. So may we each come to him today and find the deep rest that he promises us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for the promise of this passage. That um, you know us so intimately, that, and we trust you, Lord, to cut our souls but Lord, we are also hungry and we long to have the food that only you can give. And um, we pray that today, as we enter your house, as we hear your word, as we confess our sins, as we sing your praises and come to your table, we would experience um, the, the pleasure, the desires that are the deep longings of our soul in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.